it's me. You know, I wish I could be with you, but there's somewhere else I had to be. See what I did there? Hello, Bay Life. I uh, do wish I could be with you, but I'm actually at the beach with a bunch of other lifers as we are uh, talking about marriage at a marriage conference this weekend. Uh, I did want to just come on the screen and tell you about what's coming up next weekend. When I return, we're going to start a new series called Origins. We're going to go to page one of your Bibles and just go verse by verse through the book of Genesis as uh, we see how things got going uh, here in our existence. Uh, this morning, though, I, I do uh, just want to let you know you're in for a treat. We are blessed to have our college and career pastor, Travis Lowe, come bring you the word. So please put your hands together for Travis Lowe. Well, good morning, Baylife. It is good to be with you. How's everybody doing? Well, cool. Uh, so as Mark said in his handy-dandy video, my name is Travis, and I'm the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church. I wasn't always the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church. Actually, I have this sort of, uh, let's call it a rags-to-riches story, because I originally started on staff here as the janitor for Building B, uh, and so I cleaned the toilets and vacuumed the classrooms, and, and it was fun. It was a fun job. Uh, and then I went from being the janitor to being the janitor and the student ministry intern. And then I went from that to being the janitor, the intern, and the middle school and high school worship guy. And then I went from that to janitor, intern, worship guy, and college ministry intern. And then janitor disappeared, and I was still intern, worship guy, college ministry coordinator. And then everything as of last week disappeared, and I'm college ministry pastor just that now, as opposed to that plus other things. So... Um, so I, I say all of that because I spent or have spent most of my time here at Baylife involved in uh, the worship ministry, especially with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And that makes sense if you know me. Music is a huge part of my life. And for as long as I've been at Baylife, it's been a huge part of my life. Actually, when I first started attending this church, that was really the first time that I saw people play guitars in real life because I went to a more formal church with a pipe organ before that. And so uh, that made me want to learn how to play guitar. And so then Patty Fuller, who's on staff with us, taught me everything that she knew about guitar. And then I locked myself in my room as an angsty teenager and learned the rest from the internet. And so then by high school, I was playing in the worship band here at the church in our middle school and high school ministries. And then by the end of high school, uh, I was in a bunch of different bands outside of church. And by the end of college, I played almost every state in the continental U.S. through touring and playing shows. I still do that from time to time. And so music is a big part of my life. And it makes sense that that part of my life would find its way into my involvement in the church. But th there is this element of worship that, that never really came naturally to me. And if you know me, this won't come as a, su a surprise, but for the rest of you, um, this is a little insight into my life. I have a really hard time with most new worship songs. And I always had trouble finding new songs because I would turn on the Christian radio and I would go, I hate all of this. Uh, and the problem was not that it wasn't born out of a sincere conviction or that there wasn't uh, a love for the Lord. I, I'm not saying that, that it was malicious or anything like that. But, but I would listen to the radio and I would think, this is so shallow and vapid. And this doesn't really sound much like what the Christian life is really like. If, if I had a friend who was a non-believer and I said, listen to these top 40 Christian songs, 
I always felt like they would walk away thinking, so if I accept Jesus, everything gets better right away. And that just is not the Christian experience. And so couple that with angsty teenage Travis who plays in punk rock and death metal bands, and you, you have a volatile uh, mixture. And it was about at this time that I discovered the Psalms. And I just have to say, if you haven't marveled at the Psalms recently, I would recommend that you take a look through that passage of, or that section of Scripture. We are fortunate that God has seen fit to place that book within his book. In fact, if you read the Psalms, and there's no actual sheet music contained therein, there's only the words of these songs, but if you were to read them, I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that were they set to music and sent to a Christian radio station, they would not be played. Because they are brutally honest. Uh, it's like staring into an open wound in many ways as the people of God wrestle with what it means to be faithful in the midst of a fallen and a fragmented and a broken world. Uh, but these aren't simply songs written by strangers, at least not people whose names have been lost to the pages of history. Sure, there's some psalms that don't have names assigned to them, but many of them are songs from people who we know, at least we know from the pages of Scripture. They're the songs of David. They're the songs of Solomon and Moses and Asaph and the sons of Korah. They're these incredible gifts to the people of God, from God, through his people who have penned them. And I'm not the first person to discover this. Listen, I'm not so arrogant as to think that Travis in high school figured out something that the rest of the Christian church never did. And let me just say, if you think you figured out something that the last 2,000 years of church history hasn't figured out, it's probably heresy. Um, I I don't think that I figured out something new here. Uh, The reality is that Christians throughout the centuries have recognized what a gift we have in this book uh, the early church sang almost exclusively psalms. They wrote some new songs, but, but by and large, they said, God gave us a, a hymn book. It's in, it's in the book we already preach out of. John Calvin, during the Reformation, actually was afraid to write new worship music because he said, there's nothing that I could write that wouldn't do justice to what God has already said. The psalms summarize the Christian life so well. The Puritans and the Pilgrims at the founding of this country would not allow men into higher offices and church leadership unless they had memorized all of David's psalms. And many scholars would say now that Jesus himself quotes the psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. We are fortunate to have them. Several... Years ago, Corey Hires, who leads worship for the college ministry and middle school and high school ministry now, uh, we went to a conference together in Orlando at the seminary that I attend, and it was hosting a man named Keith Getty. You, you may not recognize his name, but he and his wife wrote the, the song In Christ Alone that we sing on some Sundays. And so Keith was talking about, I'd say that like I know him, Mr. Getty was talking about Uh, what his hopes were and and what his concerns were for the Christian church going forward in the songs that we sing. And he made this point that's lingered with me for years now. He said this, that we think that the people of God learn primarily by what is being said from behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And that is true. But they learn what they think. They learn their theology. They learn what they believe about God just as much by the songs that they sing as by the message that is preached. And I'm sure many of us, like myself, 
have walked out of a service before not remembering a single thing that was said from the pulpit, but remembering the songs that we sang. It is important that the songs we sing do justice to the God to whom we're singing because they teach us. And my hope is this morning that we can come to this book, uh, specifically the first chapter of the Psalms, and that we can be taught uh, from God's word. So if you would turn with me to the book of Psalms chapter 1, and we're going to spend our morning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. There is a tradition that we have in the college ministry uh, where when we read God's word, we stand together in honor of it. And so I'm importing that tradition from Sunday nights to Sunday mornings. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read through Psalms chapter 1? Let me read it for us. Psalms chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like a chaff that the wind drive away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the wicked, or the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. So if you've taken a lit, lit class or a writing class or a composition class in middle school or high school or college, there's this one big thing that they always hammer home, and it's the importance of a thesis statement. I, I had professors in college tell me that if you don't get your thesis statement right, you should plan on failing your paper. And so if you're not familiar with what that is or you need a refresher, essentially in the first paragraph of any essay, uh, you're supposed to have at least one sentence that explains what you're trying to do with the essay, what you're trying to explain or unpack, what the content of the next however many paragraphs is going to be. And many scholars would actually say that Psalms chapter 1 and 2 are the thesis statement of the entire book. And so if we miss the point of Psalms 1 and 2, you will miss the point of the Psalms, period. But even within the thesis statement of these two chapters, each chapter, in addition to introducing us to the Psalms, is trying to teach us something. Psalms chapter 1 has a thesis statement in it. The psalmist tells us what he's trying to do here. And he says it and summarizes it in this way, the first line, blessed is the man. Now, it says blessed is the man. Uh, That's a catch-all term in the ancient Near East. Mankind is not just referring to men, but all of the human race. So know that this is not simply for men. It's for women as well. But there's some unpacking we need to do because the psalmist tells us that, that he means to teach us the way of blessing, how to live a blessed life. But in the Western world in which we live, that term has been distorted in such a way that I don't think it does justice to what we're actually being taught here. Because for many of us, we hear the word blessing, and we think of it in monetary and materialistic terms. Uh, Very often when somebody asks how we're doing, maybe in the lobby on a Sunday morning or maybe at work, we use phrases like, too blessed to be stressed. And I may have said it once or twice before. But the reality is that contained in that phrase, what, what it seems like we're saying is that things are going well. Maybe our car's working, our roof isn't leaking, our children aren't making bad decisions, our marriage is going well, etc., etc. Or maybe you shorten that phrase to simply, how are you doing? Blessed. 
And so people assume that things are going well with you because there is this assumption that to be blessed is to have everything that you want and for things to be going your way, so to speak. And Now, I don't want to deceive you into thinking that when the Bible talks about blessing, it doesn't talk about it sometimes in those terms. There's people who we would say are materially blessed. Esther, David, Solomon, they're super rich. And sometimes God sees fit to bless his people with financial prosperity. But the Bible doesn't just talk about blessing in those terms. A blessing doesn't necessarily mean or equal financial prosperity. Let me give you some examples. I don't think anybody would disagree that the Apostle Paul is blessed. But the Apostle Paul is shipwrecked, and he's beaten, and he's stoned, and he's whipped, and he's ultimately executed. There's no indication that he was a man of wealth. He had to work and pay his wages as a tent maker. Why is Paul blessed? Not because of what he has, but who he has. It's because he has Christ. Our Catholic friends uh, in the Hail Mary prayer, they say, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed are you among women. Uh, Which comes from what Mary says about herself in the Gospel of Luke. She says, after realizing and being told that that she is carrying the Messiah. She says, from this point on, all generations will call me blessed. And we would all say that Mary was a blessed woman. But Mary is still a peasant girl uh, in the armpit of the Roman Empire. And she now has to explain to her fiancé how she is not pregnant because she's cheated on him, but because God did it. That is not a too-blessed-to-be-stressed situation. (laughs) There's a lot to be stressed about there, but she still says people will call me blessed. Why? Because she's seen the saving work of God. So when this passage says that the man is blessed who does these things, a lot of people would say the best way to understand that is not simply that you're going to have nice things, uh, but but that we could be saying to replace the word blessed, you could use joyful or content or happy. The psalmist is trying to teach us how to live a content life and a joyful and a blessed life. And I say all that because I don't want you to leave this room thinking that what the psalmist is doing is giving you some sort of a formula or a magic spell for how to get a Mercedes-Benz because that's not his intention. He wants to teach you how to live with joy. So he begins to explain how we do this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's an interesting way to begin your instruction. Blessed is the person who doesn't do these things. And we would not be doing the text justice if we didn't realize that these next three lines of the psalm trace a downward spiral. You might have noticed it. Who walks not, who does not stand, and who does not sit. The psalmist says that in walking in the counsel of the wicked, we begin to stand in the way of sinners and we grow tired of standing. And so we sit down in the seat of scoffers. Do you see how things spiral out? But this all begins in that second line of the psalm. It begins this downward spiral that he's trying to warn us about that's going to threaten this joyful life that God means for his people to have. It is walking in wicked counsel, the psalmist says, that the beginning of the unraveling of any life of joy is when you're not discerning about the people whose advice you take. 
the psalmist tells us that the beginning of nearly any downward spiral is the counsel that you walk in. This is a scary thing for the modern American church. Because for many of us, we get our theology from Oprah and BuzzFeed. We get our dating and marriage advice from Nicholas Sparks novels and Twilight movies. And then when it comes time to parent our children, we would much rather watch Dr. Phil than examine scripture. And I'm not saying that Dr. Phil is wicked per se. But I am saying that the counsel that we receive is often not received with any discernment. We are not cautious about those whom we allow to speak into our lives. But the psalmist says that that is the beginning of a very dark road. If the Christian is not careful of whose advice they take. Now what I'm not saying here is that there are not people outside of the church who maybe don't believe the same things that we do, who can't get it right, who can't occasionally give good advice, who can't be experts in their field. We call that common grace. God says reign on the just and the unjust. But here's what I am saying. When it comes to making moral decisions, life decisions, there is no amount of common ground or intellectual capital that can overcome the fact that between two people, one believes that Jesus Christ is risen, reigning, and returning, and the other one does not. To say that Christ is risen, as we do on Easter Sunday, and that he is returning, changes everything about how we relate to the world. And if somebody doesn't share that conviction, they will relate to the world differently. And if you take the advice of somebody who doesn't think that there is a judgment and that the Son of God is returning, do not be surprised when after going down that road, you find yourself standing in the way of sinners and ultimately sitting in the seat of scoffers. I saw this play out really practically in my own life several years ago. A great friend of mine, solid guy, but not a believer. We were talking and a, a group of Christians that were, we were mutual friends with came up and he kind of vented some of his frustration about them and that sent me off on my tirade, if you will. And, and I just started going on and on and on about how frustrated I was with them and how I didn't feel like they were whatever. Uh, there came a point where the spirit, as he often does, says, Travis, shut up. And so Travis shut up and, and I stopped and I said, you know what, I, I'm going to stop. I probably shouldn't probably shouldn't really be talking about them like I am. So let's, let's just drop that. And my friend who is not a believer looked at me with kind of this odd look about him. And he said, I'm not, they're not here. I'm not going to tell anybody what you said. And I was like, oh, I know, but I, I don't want to gossip about people. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter if it doesn't get back to them. Like, I mean, you know me, you trust me. I, I'm not going to say anything. And at that point in my mind, listen, I recognize that he was trying to give me helpful advice, but as somebody who doesn't sit under the commandment of the word of God that we should not be gossips, the advice he gives me can only go so far. And so the conversation stopped, and he didn't understand why. But listen to me. Every friend, almost every friend who I've ever seen walk away from the faith, and I've seen a lot of them, that journey started when they took counsel from the wicked. Parents, get this into your children's head now, that the people who speak into their lives are going to have more of an effect on them than anything else. The psalmist says, if you want to live a joyful life, if you want to live a blessed life, 
And then be cautious of who counsels you. So he goes on. After telling us what not to do, in verse 2, he says this. Instead of walking in wicked counsel and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. Not coffers. Everybody coughs. Um, In verse 2, he says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates both day and night. Now, I should tell you this. I majored in religion at USF, which, in case you didn't know, is not a Christian university. And so, when I hear the word meditates, as somebody who went through a religious studies degree, I think of certain things. I think of people in the lotus position on yoga mats chanting the Om. I think of Hinduism. I think of Buddhism. I think of Hare Krishna and Eastern philosophy and religious thought. And so maybe that comes to your mind as well. And so you're reading through your Bible and you see meditates and you go, wait, what? And so I feel like it might be worthwhile for us to explain the differences between what the psalmist is telling us to do here and what the other religions of the world do. Because the reality is that when you examine what meditation looks like in an Eastern context, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in uh, any, any other practice that incorporates it, it's fundamentally about emptying your mind. It's about becoming a blank slate. It's about uh, removing thought, negating thought, and becoming an empty vessel, so to speak. But when the psalmist tells us, as the people of God, to meditate, he tells us to do the exact opposite. Instead, he says that we are to meditate on something, not nothing, and that something is the law of the Lord. You will find that Scripture commends to us meditation. and tells us, as the people of God, to meditate on something. On the law of the Lord, being filled with Scripture and with the Holy Spirit so that we can understand the words which the Spirit inspired human authors to write. We are told to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And this picture of being filled with the Word of God and the Spirit of God is actually uh, even more clear in the Hebrew. I'm not going to pretend to explain tell you what the Hebrew word is. I couldn't pronounce it. Uh, But the word for meditates here is actually an onomatopoeia in Hebrew. Uh, If you need a refresher on what that is, I had to look it up. Uh, An onomatopoeia is a word that's meant to sound like a sound. So buzz is meant to mimic the sound of an insect. Or gur is meant to mimic the sound of your dog when it's mad at you. Well, so in the Hebrew, the word for meditates is an onomatopoeia that's supposed to mimic the sound of somebody mumbling. And the thought, the idea behind it, is that somebody is so consumed with thinking about what, what's going on that it spills over into where they're almost talking to themselves, not in uh, any sort of an unstable way, but, but that their minds are so consumed with thinking about this topic that as they go about their day, they're mumbling to themselves as they turn it over in their heads. And the psalmist says, meditate on the law of the Lord in that way that you are so filled by it And your thoughts are so consumed by it that it spills over into your day-to-day life. I'm just going to tell you this. I don't think that that sort of deep thinking and engagement with God's word happens if you don't have it memorized. I grew up in a Christian home going to a Christian school. And so uh, for me, there was a part of this that ran against my grain, so to speak, for a little while. Because I had Bible class in a Christian school, which meant that I could fail in the Bible if I didn't memorize the verses each week. And terrifyingly enough, I did have a D plus in Bible one semester. So if that frightens you that I'm up here, I'm sorry, I promise I've gotten better about it. 
So for me, memorizing the Bible was always this cold and callous thing. But the reality is that this kind of thinking, this kind of engagement with God's word, this meditating on it day and night, it cannot happen if the content of scripture disappears when your cell phone battery dies or when the app crashes or when you close the book and put it back on your bookshelf. The only way that we can meditate day and night on the law of God is if we've hidden it in our hearts. And there's every indication that Jesus did this. We see in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that three times Satan tempts him and Jesus responds with scripture. And there's nothing in the text to indicate that he had to pull out his YouVersion Bible app before he could do it. He simply responds. There's this brilliant question that he asks the Pharisees every time they approach him and challenge him. Have you not read? Because I've read. If you haven't read, let me just quote it for you. And there it goes. So let me appeal to you, and as the psalmist appeals to you, that if we are to live this blessed life, this joyful life, uh, this content life, that we, we, it's not simply enough to be cautious of our counsel, but we have to be a people who are informed, biblically informed and literate, that we have the word of God hidden in us in such a way that day and night we can think about it so that it finds its way into our conversations. So the psalmist then begins to paint a picture of what this kind of person looks like. Verse 3, he says that the person who does these things is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like a chaff that the wind drives away. So what we get here is this beautiful picture, as the psalms are so often filled with, uh, of the person who does these things, who's cautious of the counsel they take, who makes sure that they have the right people speaking into their lives, and who's meditating on the word of God. They are like a tree whose roots go deep into the bedrock of the law of God. And the psalmist says there will come a point at which uh, a life that has sown these seeds will yield fruit. But I do want you to note, because the psalmist includes it, that it's going to yield fruit in its season. Many of us think that if we do the right things today, the good things happen tomorrow. The psalmist is not so naive. He recognizes that that is going to take time, that sometimes it takes years, even decades, even centuries for the people of God to be vindicated. The promise is not that the seasons will not be difficult. The promise is not that they won't be filled with floods and hurricanes and downpours. The promise is that your roots will be deeply grounded in something that will cause you to not be overturned in the midst of it. The promise is that the tree will not be blown over in the process of yielding fruit. The last time I was here with you all, I believe I mentioned Jonathan Edwards. I think it bears repeating in this context. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in New England. Uh, He's considered to be one of the greatest preachers to have ever preached on American soil. Uh, So much so that I went to Newsom High School, which is not a Christian school, and we still read Jonathan Edwards' sermons in my lit class because they were considered to be masterpieces. And Jonathan Edwards uh, preached for a number of years at his church in New England before they fired him because he decided that in studying Scripture, communion was for Christians and not for non-believers, which is pretty much what Scripture teaches And the church said, well, but that's offensive. And so they fired him. And then they realized, oh, we have nobody who can fill his pulpit. Would you mind sticking around for three or four months while we find somebody to replace you? 
and continue to preach to the people who just fired you. And he did. I wouldn't have, (laughs) but he did. And at that point, once they filled his pulpit, he went to become what people have called the apostle to the Native Americans. Uh, He translated the Bible into native tongues. He trained up Native American ministers. He preached the gospel uh, to them. He vied for Native American rights in the face of overwhelming prejudices during that time. And then he died. Never once did he get an I'm sorry. Never once did he get a we've examined this more closely and you were right. Not until 200 years later did the church unveil a statue in his honor and publicly repent of the facts that they had sinned against a man of God when his convictions were grounded more fully in scripture than theirs. That took a lot of seasons for that fruit to be yielded. And I want you to recognize that that scripture doesn't deceive us in saying that it will take seasons Uh, That you, in honoring God, in living this life of joy, that you may not necessarily be vindicated tomorrow, or next week, or next year, or in the next 10 years. The promise is that your roots will grow deep enough that you can withstand the storms as you wait for the fruit. The psalmist goes on. He looks past his illustration to a day in the future that has yet to be named. In verse 5 and 6, he says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer in the 1500s, famously, when asked about his calendar, said, I have but two days on my schedule. There is this day in which I'm living, and there is that day upon which I will give an account for everything I did with all of these days. And this is what the psalmist is getting at here. Because he's looking forward, uh, not to a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, years from now. He's looking forward to that day. That day when Christ vindicates his people. And here's what I fear might happen in the church if we're not careful. If we lose sight of the fact that Christ is not only risen and reigning, but he's returning then we're going to despair and feel like we failed and like the kingdom of God has failed and collapsed every time the Supreme Court makes a ruling that we don't care for, every time the person in office is not the person that we think would be God's best for our country, every time we lose a political argument on Facebook. If we've lost sight of that day, then we'll live in despair on this day. But the psalmist is saying this, that the life of joy is not simply rooted in victories on this day. And there's no promise that there will be victory on this day. There is the promise that on that day, on that day, the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. Jesus wins. The people of God and the church are vindicated. Our hope is not in five years from now, ten years from now. Our hope is not in political systems or human leadership. Our hope is in that day when the people of God are vindicated by the God who saved them. It's fitting that the psalm ends in this way, right? Because a life of joy is not grounded in the shifting circumstances of our modern world. A life of blessedness and joy is grounded in the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness to make good on that day all the things that he has promised. So my hope 
is that you would experience this life of blessedness and joy that the psalmist talks about, guarding your counsel and making sure that you have godly people speaking into your life, meditating and thinking deeply about the things of God and always hoping in that day when all of these days and the things we've done in these days will be brought to bear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather under your word. Lord, what a shame it would be if we sat under it and we walked away unchanged. God, I pray that we are not like those who look at themselves in the mirror and forget what they look like. But God, uh, that you transform our hearts and our affections. God, that you give us hope and joy. Uh, Lord, that you teach us what it means to walk in good counsel, to meditate on your word. And to live for that day, knowing that what happens on this day matters. Father, I pray that you commission us now. You send us out into the world as your people, as the citizens of your kingdom. And I ask that you bring us back next week, as you're so faithful to do, to meet with one another again. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. We'll see you next week.